Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Aisha Sasei. Aisha Sasei is a journalist who has received many accolades and awards during her decade-long tenure at CNN, including the 2014 Peabody Award as head of the team that covered the Chibok schoolgirls who were kidnapped by the extremist group Boko Haram. Aisha's work covering the story, from the initial abduction to the release of many of the girls, and the personal resonance of the story for her led her to write Beneath the Tamarind Tree. In addition to covering the facts of the story, Aisha takes the reader into the lives of several of the girls, adding a crucial human element. We spoke with Aisha about the book, her own connection to the story and girls, and what she hopes students will take from the book. So joining us on the phone right now, we have Aisha Sasei, author of Beneath the Tamarind Tree. And Aisha, thanks for joining us today. So good to be with you. All right. Um, so as of this interview, it's mid-November. You spoke about a month ago at the Orientation Directors Conference in Houston, Texas. How was that experience for you? You know, it was such an incredible room, different um, from the rooms that I have spoken in uh, in recent months since the book was published because, you know, they had a different focus, obviously, looking at books that would suit um, freshmen, you know, joining schools across the country and looking for books that had, you know, or had lessons to share um, and just a different point of view as they, as they kind of take in all these different publications. And so it was really great for me to really focus my mind on, you know, why I feel this is a good book for that constituency of readers, if you will, and also just to kind of, you know, allow me allow myself to, to talk about why this is an important book and why this is an important book for young people in particular to be reading. So it was a great opportunity. It was a great experience. Um, full room. Everyone was fully engaged, um, and I just loved it. Mm-hmm. So for students who may be reading your book, um, whether it's in a class or as part of a larger university-wide program, or even just on their own, what do you hope they take away from it? Yeah, yeah, there, there, there are a couple of things. I, I hope that, first of all, they, they take away an understanding of what happened and the story behind um, what was a massive headline a couple of years ago. And mm-hmm. really, I hope that that sparks an interest in going behind the news in general, not just for this story, but for others. Um, but I also hope that it will build a sense of the interconnectedness between the U.S. and other countries um, across the world and why those relationships matter. I feel we're moving into a space where... Um, too much of the reporting in, in main news media is solely focused on the U.S. and is inward-looking. Um, and, you know, for fear of offending some, almost, almost, you know, because of some of the messaging coming out of certain places in this country, almost kind of isolationist mm-hmm. in tone. And I feel that this book hopefully will help break that a little bit and widen the aperture 
the lens in which people see the country and, and the world and why these relationships matter. Um, and also just build basic empathy, right? And help them be better global citizens. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so now, Aisha, let me ask you this. Um, for young people especially, um, you know, we rely on media so much in the news for, you know, our information about what's happening in the world. So if the media is, as you say, you know, really focused on American issues, there's this isolationism there. Um, what can Americans do to stay informed about things like the kidnapping of Boko Haram that maybe aren't as prevalent in the headlines? Mm. I, you know, I think this is, uh, you know, it's the best of times and it's the worst of times for journalism, right? Because even the mainstream, you know, in, quotes, in, in quotation marks, mainstream media is focused on on, on U.S. matters and, and, and covering them in a particular way. Um, there's so many great publications that are doing so much good work that isn't um, focused on just the U.S. And uh, whether that's reading The Economist, whether that's, you know, reading The Guardian, whether it's looking at the BBC website, looking at uh, various publications that are out there that do have a broad global view and are covering things that are happening all over the world. You know, another good place to, to, to look at in terms of figuring out what's happening on the ground in Nigeria, not a new site, but an organization that's committed to Nigeria, whether it's, it's Amnesty, whether it's Human Rights Watch, whether it's these... Uh, uh, human rights um, justice organizations that are, are covering what's happening in hotspots around the world. I, I think if you're interested, there are lots of places to go to find that, that information. That's the one thing. It's not that there isn't information. If you, you could argue, actually, that there's too much information, mm -hmm. and that's what's overwhelming people. Absolutely. I think the sifting through it becomes the difficult thing there. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Um, so one of the big reasons this did come to people's attention, especially in America years ago, um, was the hashtag Bring Back Our Girls, which obviously, as you know, went viral on social media, sparked this movement that was very passionate, but unfortunately very short-lived. Um, so with regards to that sort of, in quotes, hashtag activism, um, do you think that makes a major difference? Um, even if, you know, it draws attention to the issue for sure, but does that make a tangible difference in terms of the effort to locate and rescue the girls or is that awareness simply valuable enough on its own you know people talk about you know hashtag activism mm -hmm. and, and you know people who gather online and they talk about issues and they say it doesn't move the needle you know i, I beg to differ i think that in the case of the Nigerian schoolgirls, we saw how it, it, it allowed people to coalesce. It allowed people to kind of generate what turned out to be a short-lived short -lived moment, but a moment nonetheless. But in, its, in that, it created a potency that couldn't be ignored by the Nigerian government, right? Mm -hmm. you, you couldn't say, oh, it's a few people here and there. They saw the hashtag, they saw it everywhere, and they paid attention. I, you know, I, I still maintain that had it not been for this global outcry, had it not been for international media pushing the story consistently, the Nigerian government would have just brushed this under the carpet. I say that because, you know, until CNN and others turn the full spotlight on the story, they were telling stories the Nigerian government, that is, about efforts to locate the gold, which we, you know, as journalists got down to Nigeria and found out were untrue. 
so it wasn't until they had you know global the global glare on them and that activism online did they start to think oh my god um you know we need to pay attention we need to do what we can to find these girls it took a lot longer than i would have liked for the first girls to come out i mean the first 21 came out almost two years later but that that hashtag meant something mm -hmm. it meant something and it still means something now because you know, it still focuses on the mind. It focuses the mind on what happened. People still remember it because of the hashtag. Um, and that, that can only be a good thing. I mean, what's the alternative? I guess that's the other way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. What's the alternative? Silence? Uh, everyone in their own silos? I'd much, much rather have a hashtag and people coalesce around that for as brief a moment as possible than the alternative. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, very well said. Um, so when you first heard this story, this had, you had a very personal connection to it. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I was working at CNN at the time. I was an anchor and correspondent, and I was in the newsroom when I first heard it. And, you know, in the hours that followed, I mean, I just heard that belt had been taken. And in the hours that followed, as we kind of struggled to peel back the layers of how many girls what do you mean they were taken from a school? How is that possible? And tried to gain some understanding of the, the context. You know, I was just really struck that these girls came from, you know, a, a poor, out of sight part of Nigeria, you know, Chibok in the Northeast, a place where even ordinary Nigerians, you know, sitting in, in, in metropolitan centers like Lagos and Abuja know nothing about. And I was struck by, you know, the level of poverty. I was struck by the fact that they're from the Northeast where, you know, they have the highest out-of-school population in the world. You know, it's, I'm seeing numbers now upwards of 13 million children out of school, the majority of which are girls. And all of that resonated because, you know, my own mother is from a part of Sierra Leone, um, a neighboring West African country, which, you know, while not uh, shaped by kind of the Islamic attitudes of the Northeast, you know, is still under-resourced, is still poor. My mother came from a home with, you know, multiple wives. Um, neither of my grandparents were educated, and her education transformed her life and, by extension, mine. So for me, I saw in these girls echoes of my mother's story. I saw girls who were already defying the odds by being in school at such an advanced age. I mean, they were in the last year of high school when they were taken, um, which is so out of the ordinary in parts of the Northeast where, you know, more than 50% are often married off before they're 16. So to have girls who are, you know, 17, 18, 19 in school, you know, spoke to the determination, the same determination my mother had. And so it really resonated with me. And, you know, it really, it struck me, it struck me deeply and painfully. And I also know from having worked in the news media that stories about, you know, black girls, black African girls often are short-lived. So I felt, I felt really committed right from the very beginning to driving the story forward. Mm -hmm. And you even, um, take that a step further just in your own personal life um, with the nonprofit that you founded, um, We Women Everywhere Can Lead. Could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I, you know, We Can Lead is born out of this understanding that, um, that girls all over the world 
um, specifically, specifically in this case, African girls are no different from their counterparts globally. They have the same hopes and dreams and, and the same talents and gifts. And, you know, I'm very often struck as I travel the world to CNN. I tell people that I'm from Sierra Leone, that I spent my formative years there from 7 to 16. And there was often this kind of shock or incredulity in a kind of, if not explicit, implicit sense that I must be some kind of outlier to have reached, you know, the kind of career uh, or to attain the career success that, that I've had. And that always struck me as odd um, because I, I just know that not to be the case. I'm not an outlier. I think there are thousands, millions of girls uh, like me on the continent where they've lacked opportunity and support and guidance. So we can leave them born out of the understanding that the difference is the mother that I had you know, who's educated, who stood by me, who widened, broadened my horizon and helped me see that there were no limits to be placed on what I could imagine and do. And so we can lead exist to be that force in girls' lives. Sierra Leone's our first country of operation, but the plan is to go right across Africa and, and to create this hub for girls where they understand their gifts and talents, where we empower them widen their educational opportunity and provide mentoring and really nurture them to be Africa's next generation of leaders. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. I love that. Um, so I want to pivot a little bit to going back to you as a journalist capturing this story. Um, and I'll preface this by saying this is something I think you handle very well, both in the book and in the actual reporting you did. Um, but as a journalist, do you find that there is a sort of delicate balance you have to maintain between making sure that you capture this really important story and share it with the world in a meaningful way without feeling like you're capitalizing on the trauma these girls have gone through just for a headline? Mm, very much so. Mm. Very, very much so. I mean, that, that, was, that was on my mind. Um, that was on my mind um, while the story was happening. It was on my mind while I wrote the book. Um, I, I think that that has kept me, has been another element that has kept me attached to the story also because i think that you know journalists swoop in and they say tell me everything you know mm-hmm. and they, they want the exclusive they want the headline and then they disappear and never look back right these people are no more than um figures figures in, in, in a story not really human beings with uh, dealing with their own loss and fear uh, and so i've been very mindful of that and, and also i think that a lot of the time particularly when it comes to Africa, I'm sad to say, um, we don't we don't go all out to humanize um, the, the, the individuals at the heart of the story, which makes it easy to just capitalize them and drop the story and move on. Because mm-hmm. we never saw them in the fullness of their humanity. Um, we, we, we just got enough to make the story either clickbait or watchable. Um, and so I was very conscious of that, that I wanted to truly, as best as I could, understand the community, the families, the girls who were missing. And even then, you know, I don't think that while I was a journalist at CNN that we succeeded in a way that makes me feel good about myself in terms of really capturing what was lost, which also drove me to writing the book. Mm-hmm. Because I think I think that's why we were able to drop the story so quickly, you know, because we did kind of... Uh, too many people did kind of just see it as, you know, a story of the moment 
um, and then they they moved on, and that's always a challenge in journalism, you know. And you know, to to to, to humanize them, you have to get close to the story, and sometimes you know that raises other questions: how close is too close? Mm-hmm. You know, that that that's another question that people raise. But I wanted to write the book after covering it for TV because I felt that you know that I couldn't tell you even as a TV journalist. Um, couldn't tell you anything about the inner lives of the girls. I couldn't tell you about really the details and the contours of their homes, the relationships with their families. Um, and I felt that when it came to the abduction of several white children, sadly the, the abduction, abduction of white children, you know, it's Natalie, Natalie Holloway and Madeline McCann, John Benet Ramsey. Um, you know, I could tell you details about them. I could tell you intimate details about who they were and how they looked and you know, their hopes and dreams. Um, and I felt, I felt that that wasn't afforded to these girls. And I wanted to change that. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned um, a little bit earlier in your answer, um, journalists who, you know, swoop in, tell the story and then leave. Um, but you kept in contact with these girls for quite a bit. Um, what's your current involvement with them? Are you still in touch with them today? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm very much in touch with them. It's a leading question. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I was texting with one of the girls yesterday they, they text regularly i was speaking to the school vice president two nights ago um i stay in close contact to see how they're doing um there are 107 who are out um the majority of whom are in a school in northeastern nigeria and um they're doing well i mean there are challenges i mean there would be challenges having dozens of girls in a school anywhere in the world, mm-hmm. um, let alone girls who've been through this. But, you know, I, I really try and stay in close contact to see how they're doing physically, emotionally, how they're doing with their studies, mm-hmm. and just trying to, to keep, keep tabs on them. Um, and I'm going to go and see them in a couple of weeks um, and check in. Oh, that's excellent. Well, say hi to them for us. <laughs> I will. I will. Um, so Aisha, just one more question for you. Um, this is a question that we ask all the guests on our podcast, and I feel like it's very appropriate given that education has been a topic here. Um, who was your favorite teacher? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a leading question. My mother is a teacher. Mm-hmm. My mother started as a teacher and then moved on to lecturing at the university. And um She's my first teacher. She's my most important and influential teacher. Um, as a kid, I would ask for the definition of words that I'd heard or come across, and she would point to a dictionary that was placed on a very high shelf, and I'd have to grab a footstool to climb and get it. And she she kind of nurtured in me this this hunger for knowledge and understanding. And when I was in, you know high school would go through my notebooks and draw up mock exam questions for me and would tutor me. Um, So she was certainly my most important teacher in the classroom and outside of the classroom. So that's an easy one. (laughs) Excellent. I love that. Um, Well, Aisha, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Um, and thank you to, to all the readers and everyone who's kept the story in their hearts. Take care. <laughs> all right, you Be too. Kidding. Bye. Mm-hmm. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, 
or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.